There's an island off the north coast of Germany called Heligoland. In 1994, off the northwestern coast of that island, a body was discovered, with injuries that suggested foul play. Wearing smart clothes and expensive shoes, he was given the name The Gentleman. But nearly 30 years later, he's still unidentified, and his killers have got away with murder. Welcome to the mysterious case of the Gentleman of Heligoland, one of Europe's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 7 Current Affairs We left things at the end of the last episode with a new discovery. An innocuous newspaper clipping about a man disappearing from a cross-channel ferry early in the morning of the 19th of April 1994. He seems to have boarded the Pride of Flanders in Zeebrugge, but by the time the P&O ferry reached Felixstowe, he was nowhere to be found. And we know he was 50, which matches the estimated age of the gentleman. But that is where the trail goes cold. It's not much to work on. The thing is, all of us, Ian, Joe and myself, have all got a good feeling about this one. For three reasons. Firstly, the information that we do know matches the age, the date he went missing, the location and the fact that he seems to have a connection with the UK because he was travelling back to the UK. Secondly, the clothing found on the body is much more likely to match someone who fell from a ferry than a man who was missing from a trawler or an oil rig or a gas platform, which is, sadly, the type that we find the vast majority of disappearances in the North Sea. And thirdly, we're all starting to believe more in the suicide theory. Small weights tied securely to the belt loops. That feels self-applied to us. Not the weighing method of a murderer just wishing to permanently dispose of a body. And why is that important? Well, because the man on the Pride of Flanders appears to be a suicide. So this week we put all our efforts into trying to find out as much as we could about that case. Talk to anyone who might remember it or remember him. But with so little to go on, that was going to be very, very tricky. But there was something else that I had in my mind. Something else I wanted to do. And it goes back to part of the conversation that Ian had had with Lars that wasn't in the last episode. Lars had mentioned something that the more I thought about it, the more relevant it seems to be. Lars mentioned that once in Heligoland, they found a rucksack that had been washed up on the beach. That rucksack belonged to a passenger who had sadly fallen off a ferry, the Dover Calais ferry. 
What I find interesting about that is that that rucksack naturally made its way all the way from between Calais and Dover to Heligoland. And we know the gentleman's body was floating. The decay, buoyancy overcame the weights, which means he was in the sea for quite a few weeks. And he drifted from somewhere to 20 kilometers of Heligoland. So what I'm thinking is, is it possible to estimate if we know that body has been in the sea for a period of time, where it's most likely he entered the sea? Where did he drift from? Because if we could plot the track this man is most likely to have taken in say three months to reach the spot where he was found, that might provide some very fascinating insights into exactly where this man may have entered the water. So that is the other aspect that we're going to spend some time on in this episode. But first, another article about the man who had fallen from the Pride of Flanders has been found. So I needed to speak to Ian to find out what that was all about. So I needed to speak to Ian because I understand that we've had some more information about this man that went missing. Ian, what, what do you know? Well, a little bit more information, but it, I think it does add to the uh, very scant information we had so far. One of our um, listeners and Facebook page participants, Leonie Welberg, found reference to the story in The Independent on the 19th of April. Right. I'll read, it, I'll read that little news article for you if I can. Okay. Uh, a search was launched for a 50-year-old man believed to have fallen overboard from the P&O vessel, the Pride of Flanders, crossing from Zeebrugge to Felixstowe. The alarm was raised after one car on the ship remained unclaimed. Right. That's it. Okay, so, so there's about another 10 words added to what was about yes. seven words last week. But it's yes. something new, though. It's not anything that uh, answers any questions, but it's it's more information to hopefully narrow our search in trying to identify who this chap was. So the, the new bit there is the fact that the, he only was known to have gone missing when a car wasn't recovered at the end of the voyage when they reached Felixstowe. Correct. Right. So just kind of extrapolating that then, that probably means he was on his own then, doesn't it? It probably means he was travelled alone. It means he travelled alone. It means that he wasn't a foot passenger. True. It means that he's got a method by which to carry his weights on board. He True. doesn't have to wear them before he gets on the boat or carry them in a bag or anything. True. That's true. Um, so, so these weights could have been in the boots or something, in the back of the car. Yeah. When, yeah. he, when he had a moment, because this isn't a big ferry. It's only 140 passengers, I think, this ferry. Mm. Uh, I think you know, he would have had an opportunity to go back to the car, presumably, and get what he needed, particularly in the middle of the night or the early morning, and do what he needed to do, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, we wondered why the only fact in the first report was that he was 50 years old, which seemed a very strange thing to pull out of the air with no other information. But... 
obviously they must be able to identify who the chap is at the time from the registration number of his car. Yeah. And I think that's a police activity to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And it opens up a number of potential areas where we might be able to get um, more information. I am wondering if that was actually a missing persons report back in 1994, which has been closed a long time ago because without finding him, there will be an assumption that he had died five years later, I think at the latest. Yeah. So I will try very hard to talk to Suffolk police and see if they've got any historic missing persons report that they can share more details yeah of. that sounds that sounds a sensible thing to do I, th I think there's a couple of other things as well that kind of jump out to me on, on this as well clearly no one saw him fall because the only time they realized this guy wasn't still with them was at Felixstowe when it docked so nobody raised the alarm during the, vi the voyage in any sense at all it sounds and it's also a tricky one because it, there's a question of jurisdiction, I guess, because we don't know whether this is being investigated by the Suffolk police when it arrives in Felixstowe or whether this gets handed over to Belgian police because we don't know the registration of the car. It might be an English registration. might be a Belgian registration. I think technically, technically, he's gone missing from Belgium, hasn't he? Because he was in Belgium and he got on the boat to drive his car there. And then he wasn't there when he when when his car was left. Yeah. At Felixstowe. So I yes. I don't know if we can ask for anybody who can who's listening, who's on the Facebook page, if they want to assist to try and have a hunt through some Belgian newspapers. I mean, we've got a fairly narrow date range of what we need to have a look for. Very, very narrow, yeah. Yeah, I'm just thinking what else we might be able to do because, yeah, obviously, great if we can have a conversation with Suffolk Police, they may be able to throw some light on it. I suppose we can have a conversation with some of the journalists down that neck of the woods as well. They may remember the story. Uh, P&O may remember it. You know, if this was a ferry being run by P&O, uh, they may have logbooks and things of these journeys, particularly if something like this happened. So I guess, I guess there, are, there are avenues for us to explore. It's getting access into them though, isn't it? That's the, that's the question. Yeah. But what we do know from this is it sounds like a suicide. T took his car on board without the intention of ever getting back in his car because he had a plan to dispose of himself over the side at some point. It sounds like that. And again, because in relation to the gentleman, we're all kind of starting to think more seriously about the suicide options. Again, might suggest these two things could be connected. We're a long way away from establishing that, but they could be. I don't know if I'm overthinking it, Ken, but that the weights weren't really very heavy. They weren't going to hold him down for very long. They were just there to make sure he couldn't change his mind. Mm -hmm. But also, what's occurred to me is, if you go in over the side in the dark and you do get seen doing it and there's a big search that's done, they find you straight away if you're lying on the top, struggling. But if you're weighed down, they wouldn't find you, would they? You'd, even if it held you down for half an hour, you'd be gone. 
Right, so you think it might have been another insurance policy on this man in terms of saying, no one's going to get me out of here? I don't know. I just think, I just think yeah. that that's, uh, yeah, I mean, it didn't. Good thinking. I don't think the heavy enough weights to have held him under, on the seabed for very long at all. Not, not from all the other information we've got as to the, how the body had decomposed and then floated. No, hundred percent. It's all speculation. It's just my my feeling. But I just thought, if you're trying to commit suicide and you're jumping off a boat, there's a danger you get rescued. But there's yeah. not if you weigh yourself down. Yeah, it's a good point. Not one that had occurred to me before. But again, yeah, it does suggest that as well. Okay, cool. So we've got some work to do, but thanks for kind of taking us through that tiny little bit of additional information. But of course, knowing that little bit of information does help us to extrapolate some fairly serious things. I'm grateful to Leone and uh, thanks for taking us through that. And we'll need to get back together again soon with what we've been able to find out from that. Indeed, I will. Brilliant. Thanks, Ian. So, we've got a man disappearing alone from a ferry. And we need to find out everything we can about what happened on the night of the 19th of April and who it happened to. That's going to take some time. And whilst we work our magic on that, I want to park it for a second and go back to this thing that I've got to be in my bonnet about. And that's currents. What I've been trying to work out is if we know where the body was found, is it possible to predict where he entered the water? And could a man who fell from a ferry crossing the channel possibly end up near Heligoland? Because as you know, if you throw something in the sea, it doesn't stay there, it moves. That's why things wash up hundreds and thousands of miles away from where they were lost because of currents and wind and tide and weight. And these movements are predictable, but they're extremely complicated. And I've been doing, over the last fortnight, quite a lot of background reading into this subject. And it started with me reading a paper called A Brief Analysis of North Sea Physics. It's not that brief, but it is very interesting. And I'll put a link to that particular report. And I quickly realised it's very complicated. Very bright people spend a great deal of time thinking about this. But what I'm going to try to do is to distill that down into something simpler, a Ken version of that paper. Essentially, there are natural currents in the Channel and the Southern North Sea that we can clearly describe. And I'll put something on the Facebook page that shows you what they are. But they can also be significantly affected by something called the North Atlantic Oscillation, which is like El Nino in the Southern Hemisphere. It's a large scale atmospheric pressure system and that strongly influences winds and strength and the direction of winds. If the NAO, as it's called, the North Atlantic Oscillation, is highly positive, then winds are stronger from the west and they blow east. If it's a low or negative 
North Atlantic Oscillation, it means the winds from the west are much lower and in fact winds may appear from the east or northeast. So why am I giving you a lecture on meteorological physics? Well, it's because of this. We know the gentleman of Heligoland was found in 1994 and the man who fell off the ship fell off in 1994. And there are historical records of what the North Atlantic Oscillation Index was by year. And in 1994, it was high, very high, which means there were higher than average velocity winds from the west to the east. Now, I want to go back to these standard currents in the North Sea. These currents travel north to south down the east coast of England and Scotland until they reach about the Thames estuary, after which they swing in a right angle eastwards. They swing eastwards because they meet a very powerful easterly current coming up from the channel that follows the coast of the continent west to east. So you've got these two streams, one coming west to east up the channel, one coming north to south down the coast of England before swinging eastwards towards Heligoland. Essentially, the current flow in the North Sea follows a counterclockwise pattern down the coast of England, swinging east all the way to Heligoland before turning north up the coast of Denmark towards Norway. And I'll post some illustrations to show you that. So everything coming from the Channel and from east of England ends up moving naturally towards Heligoland. That's the standard direction of current flow. Now there will be idiosyncrasies here and there based on local conditions, but generally that's what happens. And in periods of high North Atlantic Oscillation, which we mentioned 1994 definitely was, these currents move much, much quicker. The currents don't really change, but the speed of them does because of the higher wind velocities. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means this. On average, mean tidal currents in that area of the North Sea are around five centimeters per second. Doesn't sound very much. Something you drop in to the channel or the southern North Sea will move away from you at the rate of five centimeters per second. On average, that's three meters in a minute. Sounds about right. That's 180 meters in an hour. That's 4.3 kilometers in a day. 432 kilometers in 100 days. So if a body fell in to the Southern North Sea or English Channel, in 100 days time, it would be around 432 kilometers away. And 
What's interesting is that I had a look at the midpoint between Zeebrugge and Felixstowe. And I measured that in kilometres to where this body was found. 443.5 kilometres. So the calculation says 432 kilometres. The actual distance, 443 kilometres. Almost exactly the same. Now the reason I did that was not to prove it was this man from this particular boat who's the gentleman of Heligoland. I just wanted to prove it was possible. And more than possible, likely. We know everything drifts eastwards to Heligoland. We know from Lars, when a man fell into the sea on the Dover-Calais ferry, his rucksack ended up in Heligoland. That's important. So, in my opinion, we know the direction of travel of currents. We know it is most likely if this person had been traveling for three months, he probably came from the eastern coast of England or the Channel. It's not exact. I'm not definitely correct in this, but I think that's what the tendency will be. So I wanted to share that with you. Thanks for downloading the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the journey and things are about to develop a little further. But I'll come to that in a moment. As always, I've got a few people to thank. Leonie Welberg again for that discovery of the peace and the independent, which told us some vital new information about the circumstances of the disappearance of the man from the Pride of Flanders. Also, Zoe King in Texas who has roped her father in, who's in the UK, Mervyn Stutter, to do some research for us in Ipswich. I'm extremely grateful. And it just goes to prove how powerful this Facebook page is. Hopefully, we'll have more on that next time. We're all definitely in this together, clearly. And I honestly don't think it's possible to say that about any other true crime podcast. This one is different. The reason it's different because of everybody who's involved in it and it's great to see that we've got over 300 people on the Facebook group now and that the last episode of this podcast was downloaded over 1100 times in the first week of its release that makes it one of the most popular podcasts in the world and just to put that in context that was episode six Fred the Head didn't reach that level until episode 28. So this little side project of ours has definitely developed its own unique place in the podcast world. Clearly, there's a lot of people listening to it, which brings me to this development. On Thursday of last week, we noticed something very interesting in the Guardian newspaper in the UK. And we're going to post a link on the Facebook page to that report. But I know many of the people who listen to this podcast aren't on Facebook and don't have access to UK newspapers. So I'll read it to you. It's a newly released press release about the case from the German police. And it's very noticeably different from the original press release 
of three months ago. And I don't think there's any doubt. Someone's been listening to the podcast because the new press release has much of the information that we've been talking about in this podcast within it. And there is some new information that we didn't know, and that could be very useful. So I think the best thing I can do is read you that piece from The Guardian, dated Thursday the 28th of April. And it's entitled, MS Tie and Metal Shoe Lasts, New Clues in the Cold Case of the Gentleman. The man sported a stripy Marks and Spencer tie, expensively made, but possibly second-hand shoes, and six kilos of cast iron weights tied around his body, designed to drag him to the bottom of the North Sea. Almost three decades after finding the body of what appeared to be a murder victim in the waters off the island of Heligoland, Germany, German police have released new information and a first photo fit in order to establish the identity of the man who was dubbed the gentleman for his smart attire. Researchers at Staffordshire and Plymouth Marjon Universities, in cooperation with the German Police Academy of Lower Saxony and the Missions Persons Charity Locate International, have been collaborating on the cold case with the intention of uncovering the man's name and bringing his killers to justice. After exhuming the man's body last December, they've managed to isolate a complete DNA profile of the 45 to 50 year old male and are currently checking it against international DNA databases, police in Wilhelmshaven in northern Germany announced on Thursday. An ongoing isotope analysis could eventually confirm whether the man had lived on the British Isles before his body was dumped in the North Sea, as investigators suspect. The body was recovered from the sea by a border guard boat on the 11th of July 1994, 20 kilometres off Heligoland, but police believe it's possible that the body had travelled in the water for some distance. He could have drifted from a ship, or even as far as Great Britain. That's certainly possible, said Carsten Bettles of the Lower Saxony Police Academy. An autopsy at the time showed signs of exposure to blunt violence on the almost two metre tall, six foot five, man's head and upper body, which he had suffered while still alive. There's then a picture of the shoe lasts. Goes on. Each of the cast iron shoe lasts weighs three kilos, police said. A further telling sign of a criminal act were the two cast iron shoe lasts, each weighing three kilos, which had been fixed to the man's body to weigh him down, as police have revealed for the first time. Made in the 1920s or 1930s, these two female shoe lasts were embossed with the initials AJK, the trademark of Bristol-based company AJ Jackson. Police have also, for the first time, released the make of the man's tie, saying it was produced by Marks and Spencer, for the English and French language market, which at the time of the man's disappearance stretched all the way to Canada. Suspicions that the distinctive green, yellow and blue stripes mark the man out as belonging to a specific organisation had not been confirmed, police said. German police are seeking further information on the possible identity of the man from the public, 
having received over 50 pieces of information since appealing to the press in February. Another reason they've gone public again is to correct the victim's misleading gentleman moniker, which is based on his elegant outfit and expensive shoes. Against the backdrop of the latest information, this impression has to be relativised, police said. The MS tie was a mass market product, and the shoes had been previously repaired and may have been bought second hand, they said. It can't necessarily be assumed that the dead man was wealthy, German police said in a statement. That's where it ends. Well, there's some familiar stuff in that, isn't there? So the metal shoe lass we told you about a couple of weeks ago, they're now in the public domain. The Canadian connection with the Thai, the French-English language, the fact that he may have drifted in the water for some distance, the fact that the shoes could now be second-hand. Does that all sound a little bit familiar? Well, it did to me. I don't mind the police using our information. It would be quite nice to get a mention from where it came from. Now, the other noticeable thing is that before they were definite it was a homicide. And now that's been diluted to appear to be a murder victim. I can expect some more dilution on that in the coming months, I suspect. But there is something new, a picture. A picture of those shoe lasts. We'd never seen that before. Two of them, each weighing three kilos. That's six kilos in total. Not a very significant weight. If you're going to weigh a body down, do you do it with three bags of sugar? Now, those lasts are historic. They're from the 1920s and 1930s. They're the lasts of female shoes with the initials AJK. So they were made by AJ Jackson. They, by the way, are a last manufacturing company. They're not a shoe manufacturing company. And they're based in Bristol. And that's the second time Bristol has appeared in this story. Do you remember the repairs to the shoes were produced in Bristol? Now that could be a coincidence because they were distributed all over the country, but I like coincidences. We know those shoe lasts that were on the body started life in Bristol. We know the new heels on those shoes started life in Bristol. Did our missing man start his life in Bristol? It's a thought. I needed to speak with Ian talk through all this new information. So, Ian, you've read the new press release in the German police. Yeah. What, what do you make of it? <laughs> well, interesting that they've wanted to update things and, and, and keep it live, keep it active. Very interesting with what they've updated it with, of course, because <laughs> it all looks horribly familiar, doesn't it? I'm flattered. Hey. Look, if it, if it moves the whole thing forward, it's, it's all good, isn't it? But uh, it's interesting that they're kind of developing their narrative, though, in a way that's more in line with kind of our narrative. Yeah, I, I, the thing that struck me when is this sort of massive revelation that, you know, this guy 
might have drifted from a boat. He might even have come from the coast of England. Yeah. And you go back to the original uh, press release that, that we saw in February when we started, they thought he might have been chucked off a boat or he might have floated out from being thrown off Heligoland. So I think that they're buying into the fact that you drift hundreds of kilometres to end up where he is rather than it be something very, very local. 100%. And uh, that's a big change, that, I think, with what they originally put That's out. a massive change, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it is. But I suppose the, the big new information on this that we didn't know, uh, well, we knew there were lasts. We did know that. Uh, but we didn't know how many. We didn't know what, what they weighed. And we didn't know what they looked like. And we know all that information now. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, one of, one of the things, obviously those weights, I mean, the two, three kilo lasts, that isn't a lot, is it? I mean, this guy was 80 kilos, give or take. That isn't going to keep you down for long. Well, I think it just all lends to what we were suggesting in an earlier episode, that this is the sort of weights that somebody would put on to hold themselves down so they couldn't be rescued, rather than to keep them pinned to the seabed and never be found. just think it lends more weight to a suicide theory rather than this being a murder. I think that's 100%. I looked, by the way, at, at examples of other things which are six kilo in weight. Mm. Uh, two bricks, six pineapples, one cat, or half a dachshund. Half a dachshund. You know, it's that's German, a... isn't it? I thought that would, be, that would be applicable. Front half or the back half? I didn't, I didn't go into that kind of detail. But to be honest with you, a six foot five man of 80 kilos, if I murdered him, I'm not going to try and weigh him down for perpetuity with half a dachshund. Absolutely not. But the, I suppose the other important thing, though, about those lasts are they're from the UK. So that's a, that's a good bit of information in terms of... They're also, if they are made in the 20s or 30s, which they did say, they're also not necessarily from a place where our guy could have worked. Yeah. If you see what I mean. Yeah, they're not... They're, I don't think they're in use in the 90s. Could be. I mean, I wouldn't rule that out, but I don't think so. Well, in fact, what I'm going to do after our conversation, I'm going to try and reach out to our friend Tom Bays at Satra, that shoe expert we spoke to who was brilliant yeah. about the size. I bet he's seen a million lasts in his time, and it might be useful to get his opinion on whether they're, they were still in use in the 90s or what, what those lasts tell us about, uh, about the man, really. Hmm. Mm. So I looked up a little bit about that uh, A.J. Jackson company that manufactured them, and they just manufactured lasts. They didn't make shoes. Yeah. So I guess they could have made them and sent them wherever they sent them to their, their customers. Do you think, by the way, that the German police are rowing back a little bit on this murder hypothesis? I mean, they were very sure about it, weren't they? When At the start, and I know when I spoke to them, they were very sure about it, but... You know, they seem to be they seem to be just pulling back a little bit on that, don't they, in terms of the, some of the wording that they use? Well, yeah, they're qualifying it, aren't they, a little bit, just because they can't be... You can't be black and white about it until you know what the story was. Mm. Mm. Um, but, you know, maybe they listen to the podcast and they, they think, they're, they're thinking logically that if you wanted to dispose of a body that was never to be found, you would use more than six kilos of shoe last the other thing of course is they definitely are changing their or the story away from a gentleman well-dressed very smart 
more towards not necessarily wealthy secondhand shoes. That's definitely a new thing in terms of what's being said in these reports. Well, yes, and also a, quite a neat summary of where we got to through episodes two and three. Yeah. Um, because we talked to, to Tom. Uh, he, he was very sure about that, wasn't he? He was saying, look, these are, these are shoes which are probably being acquired by someone who wasn't the original owner. Might also just be a complete coincidence as well. These lasts are manufactured by a company that was based in Bristol. And the Nacadel shoes that had been repaired were repaired with heels that were manufactured by a company that was based in Bristol. Don't know. We might be putting two and two together there and getting five. But, but Bristol seems to keep popping up. Clearly does. And in fact, I think I'll, I'll ask Tom about that as well, whether that is just random or whether that is starting to point in a particular geographical region. So brilliant. Okay, well, listen, I'll, I'll go and track Tom down, see if I can have a conversation with him and I'll get back to you as soon as I know more from him. And... Uh, I'll keep you posted. But yeah, thanks for input on that because clearly the narrative's changing a little bit, I think, in terms of what people are putting out there. Gratifying in a way to see some of the stuff that we found now making its way into the information that the police are putting out to try and help solve the rest of it. Exactly. Brilliant. Okay, I'll keep you posted on developments. Thanks, Ian. I needed to speak with Tom Bays. He's the technical expert in footwear from Satra that we spoke to in episode two. This man knows everything there is to know about shoe manufacturing and shoes. And just as I expected, he told me some very interesting things about these lasts. Hi Tom, how are you doing? Not so bad, Ken, not so bad. Good to speak to you again. Obviously I've sent you this news report, but you are one step ahead of me as normal. You'd already seen this news report, hadn't you? Yes, I had. I caught it this morning. What do you make of the information about the lasts? I'm really interested about that. The lasts are interesting because, as far as I can see, so any kind of last from moulding made out of metal like that would have some sort of hinge in it. Those lasts that, the, that they've been called are, are cobbler's lasts, uh, from what I can see. In other words, they are for my uh, shoe repair man. Oh, right. So, these are not lasts being used in shoe manufacture or original shoe manufacture. They're being used for the repair of shoes. Pretty sure. Pretty, pretty sure that's the case. Um, obviously, they're, they're not ever so clear pictures that, that I've seen. No. Um, but, yeah, they're, they're, no, they're, they're typically used by cobblers, and they're, they're, they're kind of a generic shape. I mean, obviously, for shoe manufacturers do repairs, but yep. they will have the original last tooling to yep. do those repairs on. They don't need these kind of things. Whereas a shoe repairer will not have access to the original last. So they tend to use, tend to use these sort of generic, they'll have sizes, different sizes, but they tend to be more generic, you know, like a, something for a, a gentleman's shoe, something for a lady's shoe, and different heel heights and things like that. But they tend to be a generic shape, not, a, not an actual style. Well, that's really interesting. So these seem to have been dated around the 20s or 30s in terms of their, their original manufacture. Would they still have been used in the 1990s by in the repair industry, or were they yeah. long gone? Yeah. No, they, they, these tools are very long-lived. Uh, there's quite a little industry, actually, in reconditioning old footwear tools. 
old shoe making tools um, for for a continued life, really. So I mean, we we we've got some of these um, at work. Uh, right. We use them for doing, you know, quick, if we have to do a quick repair on something, we 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 use them at, at work still. Right. So it's conceivable, therefore, that these lasts may have been in use, and therefore conceivable yeah. that this man who happened to have access to them may have some connection to the shoe repair industry that they've still got a bit of paint on them you know that they, they, they probably were you being used up, up, up until the death it, it looks like to me because wow. they've got the right wear patterns on them and things like that but it does beg the question of you know these they don't fall out the sky and they don't grow on trees that you know they're not that common um no. Most shoe repair, like a mobile shoe repair, will have one of those um, irons where you've got like three legs. Yeah. yeah. You, you know, you know the device I'm talking about. You know, they, these they would fit into another cast iron uh, block that would have a slot in it, and that would be screwed to a bench. Yeah. And then you just change them as you need them. They just slot on and slot off. I um, see. Now, I where see. where would you come across those? Where would you? Well, you wouldn't come across them on a ship. Unless you're carrying them with you. Um, well, yeah, quite. And why would you do that? Because they would be used on a bench. So that, so yeah. this person wasn't taking them in order to use them for their real use. He may have been taking them to weigh himself down when he chucked himself off. Be a weight. They might just be a weight. One yeah. of the things that, that struck me as odd, this may be me over-extrapolating, these are made in Bristol, it seems. Mm-hmm. The repairs on the heels of the shoes found on the man in Heligoland were also made in Bristol, albeit by, by a relatively large company involved in those things. Mm-hmm. Is that significant that both of these things emanate from Bristol? Just a coincidence. I doubt it. I mean, the, the, like the dinky, dinky uh, was heel, it a dinky yeah. heel? They, they are exported everywhere. They, they would be in, I mean, if you remember... Uh, the Woolworth shops, they would be in that every Woolworth yeah. shop in, in the UK. Okay, so um, we mustn't read too much into that. I, is, I don't is, think so. But the fact that these these lasts were clearly British, they were made in Bristol, is it likely that they, therefore, would have stayed in the UK? There was not a big export market, or was there, in terms of shoe lasts all around Europe and the world? It might have been exported to Europe. <clears throat> I would have said that there would be local manufacturers in America and Canada making them. Yeah. It'd be very expensive things to ship. I mean, you wouldn't post them. Why would you do that? Why not make them near? I guess they say they're women's because they're a bit high heeled, but some men's boots are high heeled as well. Oh, right. Um, So you wouldn't necessarily, you wouldn't necessarily be certain that there were women's rather than men's last purely on the, I'd I'd have to have a good look at them really. I mean, um, do you know what size they are? They should have a, a, no, normally things like that would have a number stamped on them as, as to the size. Okay. You know, and if it's nine, it won't be women's, I don't no. think. And is it a pair? I don't know if they're a yeah. pair, but there are two. Yeah, if they're a match pair, it's unlikely you'd pick them up on a scrap heap or something. That's very true. You know, they've been, ta- they've been taken from a cobbler. How, and would they be used, just in, just in terms of how they'd be used in the repair industry? I mean, if you were putting a new sole or a new heel on, a, on an upper, yeah, uh, yeah. would that essentially what they're being used for? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and um, 
you know, you, 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 you've got to, like if you've got a rubber heel, you're going to put adhesive on it. You yeah. need to hammer that down on something yeah. um, flat and it obviously has to go inside the shoe. So it's got to be last shaped. And um, I mean, if you're, ha if you're actually using nails, for example, you, 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 you want the nails to bend over. Yeah. So um, if, you, if you look, if you, oh, I can't see the underneath of this on this picture, but if you turn it over, you'll see there's probably ding marks all around um, the edge where nails have been hammered in. Um, mm. and, the, and the metal's bent them over. Interesting. Um, if I mean, it does look like this person who was weighed down with these lasts, probably if it's if it's self-inflicted, may well have had some kind of connection with shoe repair because having a pair of those just yeah. around is rare. Yeah, you, 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 they don't just suddenly turn up. Only, only people like me who can reach over into my patio and pick up, pick them up. You know. Um, yeah. Yeah, they're not everywhere for sure. Mm, interesting. Quite, quite an expense, you know, for a cobbler to have a set of these. That's a, that's an outlay. It's just, it's a, a fairly good business that they're in. Interesting, um, interesting. But the weird thing is, if this bloke's a cobbler, but he's but he treads his the back of his jersey shoes down. I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, weird, that, that doesn't ring right. Um, if they didn't fit very well. He might have been wearing them as slippers, yeah, because they are very uh, distorted at the back. That there's, a, I think I said before, it's not that's not doing it once or twice. That's doing yeah. it all the time. You put them on. Yeah. Hmm. Food for thought. Well, mm, hey, Tom, I'm I'm grateful for that. That's been really no problem. The fact the fact that we know now, or we suspect now, that this is to do with repair rather than manufacture, and the fact that it could still have been, in fact, probably was still being used in the 1990s yeah well it still looks like it's i mean these things are normally gold are ours at work are gold and you can see it's still got the sort of goldeny metallic paint uh, which, which you know if these are left outside for a year that, that that'll go and they'll rust but it's not rusty at the end either it's shiny yeah it is, these have been used even where the paint's worn off it they're fairly shiny they've indicated these are ladies last what, what's, your, what's your thoughts on that well, let's say looking at the picture, that there's not a very good picture. I've got, to, I've got to admit, um, it looks like it's about probably twenty. I, I think it's sort of like twenty-six or twenty-seven um, centimeters long, and that puts it firmly, probably a nine. Wow! Okay. I mean, a foot foot length of two seventy would be a would be a nine in but foot that's... length, but this is the last you see. So. Um, so that's not that's not that's not a woman's size, really, is it? I mean, no, it's a bit it's a bit big, and so I think they might be distracted by the point that it's it looks very slim, uh, and I say they are slim because you, you're putting the shoe on and taking it off, and there's no there's no hinge. Yeah. Um, so it has it is a fairly loose fit. Your view would be they're more likely to be men's lasts than women's lasts. Yeah. Yeah, the the time we're talking about, I think probably far more men's shoes get get fixed, uh, and uh, new soles than, than women's. Women's is a lot harder, especially if it's high heel or something like that. These are used typically with uh, for fixing welted footwear, and you know there's not a lot of ladies' welted footwear around. Um, that makes sense. That makes absolute sense. Hmm. Interesting. I wonder if this will end up having a Northampton connection. Uh, could well do, couldn't it? It's very, very intriguing. It is. 
Um, Thanks, Tom. I really appreciate mm. that. And uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, you're just a mine of information every time. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks. I've, I've got a feeling we'll probably have to have a few more conversations before this one's closed out. Yeah, oh, definitely. So that was episode seven. And there's a lot to take in. Four main themes. The new information about the man who fell from the Pride of Flanders in April 1994. The drift and current information. Where did that man drift to? Did he drift all the way to Heligoland? Thirdly, the new information released by the German police. That makes very interesting reading. And finally, exactly what do these lasts tell us about the man that was found in the sea off Heligoland? What story have they still to reveal? Already, I know there's going to be more to add to each of those four areas of interest in the next podcast. Our work towards episode eight begins now. And we've got a lot of work to do. But that's all for next time. So, until next time, have a good one. The Mysterious Case of the Gentleman of Heligoland is a copyrighted GSE Media production. Written and narrated by Ian Mackay and Ken Davis. And produced by myself, Ken Davis. <laughs>